This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. So last week we started a new series and what we're doing for the remainder of this summer in July and August is we're going to look at some of the prayers of the Apostle Paul. You know, there are times in Paul's letters when he just stops and prays for the church that he is writing to. And so we're going to look at those prayers uh, today and, and for the remainder of the summer. We looked at the first one last week in Colossians 1, and today we're going to be looking at one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where we see Paul's heart for the people of God. So if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians, the third chapter, and the prayer itself is found in verses 11 through 13. We're going to look at the larger context of that and then dig into the prayer itself this morning. We talked about this last week, but the prayers of the Bible, whether you're talking about the Psalms, the Lord's Prayer, the prayers of Paul, like we're going to be looking at for the remainder of the summer, the prayers of Scripture can do so much to deepen our own prayer lives as we learn to pray the Scripture, as we learn to pray the prayers of Scripture as we use the prayers of scripture as kind of uh, structures and launching pads for our own prayers, it, it can take us so much deeper in our communion with the living God. So that's what we're talking about in this series for the remainder of the summer. So let's look this morning at First Thessalonians chapter 3 um, and I want us to begin, the prayer is in verses 11 through 13, but let's, be, let's begin looking at it in verse 9, if you would follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Apostle Paul says, How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our you as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face, and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. Lord, we thank you that it's fully truthful and that we can depend on your word as we depend upon you as we just sung. Lord, how we we pray that you would deepen our communion with, with you, that we would learn to abide in you more to to that our communion with you would be deepened as we dig into these these prayers of the apostle paul for the remainder of this summer and lord may you you take 
this prayer today and take the, the whole story and the context of what leads to this, this passionate prayer for the people of God. And Lord, may you use it to deepen our faith, hope, and love today. Lord, would your spirit be poured out as we dig into your word with eager, open hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I was in the, the UK with some of the, our, a, a big group of our, of our missionaries, our IMB missionaries, and we had some sessions together with, with different speakers. I was able to speak some and, and, and some others. But, but in, in one of our sessions together, the speaker was talking about the courage to be vulnerable in the context of a, of a team, to, to, the courage to to open up, to kind of take a faith-filled risk and put yourself out there and kind of make yourself vulnerable in front of other people. And so he played a, a clip, and you can see it on, on YouTube. You might have seen this. It has about 88 million views. But it's a, it's a clip about three or four minutes long. And it's, it, it was done some years ago. And it, it's a clip of one of the, the practice sessions for the, the musical, the movie musical, The Greatest Showman. And so they're just, the, the, the cast is just in street clothes. You know, it's just practice. And they're gathered in this rehearsal room and they're going over the song that is like the centerpiece of The Greatest Showman. And so they begin to sing, the, the, the woman who was the lead vocalist on the song begins to sing, and everything is just kind of subdued, you know, it's just practice, and she is behind a, a music stand, and you know, kind of just, just singing, and everybody's just kind of still, and not, you know, not, a, not a lot of life or energy in the room, but then something happens. The lead vocalist just kind of steps out from behind the music stand and gets in front of everybody. And as the music begins to pick up, she just begins to sing with this incredible passion. And the movements of her body are kind of following. She begins to dance. And then all of a sudden, something extraordinary happens in the room because the musicians who are playing, they, they begin to play with more energy and the backup singers begin to sing with more energy. And suddenly, it, by the end of the song, there's like this whole incredible, uh, joyous sound and movement that is filling that room as people are just kind of swept up and it began with one person just kind of opening up and making themselves vulnerable. This is one of those texts in Paul's letters where he just kind of like lays it out there. I mean, he just puts his heart out there in this text, his heart for the people of God and he is swept up in thanksgiving and joy as he writes this and he sweeps us up along with him. So let's look first of all at the background. What, what is it that leads to this prayer that we see in chapter three? In order to see why Paul's heart was so full as he prays for the church at Thessalonica, we need to see kind of the background of what's happening. And Acts 16 and 17 tell us in dramatic, 
vivid detail about some of that background. So in the 16th chapter of Acts, God gives Paul at one night this vision. It's a vision of a, a man in Macedonia. And this man is calling out, come over to Macedonia and help us. Because they were lost. The people in Macedonia were a completely unreached and unengaged people group. No one was there. The gospel had not yet come to them. And so this man just represents the Macedonian people, and he's crying out, come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, Paul perceives immediately that this is a call from God to go to Macedonia. And so the very next morning, they set out. They go to Macedonia, which was on the continent of Europe. This is the first time the gospel had ever come to, to Europe. The first city that they come to in Macedonia is Philippi. And so Acts 16 tells us that they go down by the river. Paul shares the gospel. The Spirit opens Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel. A, a, a little church gets going in Philippi, but then violent persecution breaks out. Paul and Silas are, are taken. They are savagely beaten, flogged with rods, thrown into prison, and they have to eventually leave Philippi, and then still bleeding and scarred from, from what the beating they received in Philippi, the next city they come to, which Acts 17 tells us about, is Thessalonica. And the Bible tells us in, in Acts 17 that for three successive Sabbaths, the apostle Paul went into the synagogue in Thessalonica, and he was sharing the gospel with the people there. And it says that some Jewish people came to know Christ as their Messiah. It tells us that many Gentiles came to know Christ as well. And so this fledgling church of baby Christians gets going in the city of Thessalonica, but then once again, a mob forms, violent persecution breaks out. And Paul has to leave Thessalonica with a heavy heart. The last thing that Paul would have ever wanted to do was to leave a bunch of baby Christians behind in a city where they were being persecuted when they've only known the Lord for a few weeks. And they desperately needed more instruction, more discipleship, but they had to leave. And so his heart was heavy it was burdened for these people. And so he writes to them. He writes the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. So I want us to see the context here that leads to this prayer in chapter 3. And to do that, I want us to go back to chapter 2. So go back to chapter 2. And let's pick it up here beginning in verse 17. But as for us... Brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. This, this phrase here in the CSB in verse 17, it says we were, we were forced to leave you. In the ESV, it says we were torn away from you. Uh, the NIV says we were orphaned by being separated from you. 
The Greek word here is the word where we get the English word orphan. And in a first century context, it could mean either children deprived of parents or parents deprived of children. And this is really both. These were baby Christians being deprived of their spiritual father. This is a spiritual father, Paul, being deprived of these people. And so they, they had been forced apart, torn apart in a way that was unnatural. The natural thing would have been for him to be there with them and nurturing them and, and, and their faith and helping them grow. He couldn't do it. And so his heart was, was heavy. He so wanted to be with them. Look at verse 18. He says, so we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. The word hindered here means that like obstacles strewn in his path. Now we don't know exactly what those obstacles were that Satan had strewn in their path, but we, we do know that, that they could not come and they desperately wanted to come. And this led to an extraordinarily selfless, sacrificial decision on Paul's part. And we see it at the beginning of chapter three. Look at chapter three in verses one and two. He says, therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith. Now, Timothy was absolutely vital to Paul's team in Athens, and he was like a son to Paul. But Paul makes the decision, oh, listen, these people in Thessalonica, they're baby Christians. Somebody's got to get to them. And so they, they send Timothy to go. And bear in mind, in the first century, there's no air travel. There is no auto travel. When somebody made a visit like this, it meant that they were going to be gone weeks, maybe months. But they made that sacrificial decision to send Timothy to encourage them and strengthen them very afraid of what Timothy might find. Look at verse five, chapter three and verse, and verse five. He says, for this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him, Timothy, to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Paul is afraid that what Timothy is going to find in Thessalonica is a church that is blown up. A church that basically no longer exists, that's been blown up by persecution. It's just kind of shattered because these are baby Christians and they, they, they needed more instruction. He was so afraid that Timothy was just going to find that a, a church that was no longer in existence in Thessalonica. But that is not what Timothy found, praise God. Look at, verse, look at verse six. But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we also long to see you. I mean, you can just feel the joy and the relief coming through Paul's pen as he writes this, look at verses seven and eight. It says, therefore, 
brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. I'm so struck by that phrase. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. What does he mean by this? Now, now we live if you stand firm. What he's talking about is, is the fact that, that their lives are bound up together. We're one in Christ. And Paul is saying, he says, now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. He says that because, because their life, the lives of the missionaries who led them to faith are bound up with their spiritual lives. You know, I, I, I'm reminded so much of something that happens um, in Genesis, and it's when Judah is, is talking to Joseph um, and uh, about uh, that he, they, he, they need to bring Benjamin back with them. That they don't, they don't want to see their father Jacob without Benjamin. Why? Because his life is wrapped up in the boy's life. The life of the father and son are bound up, wrapped up together. Parents, you, you know what I'm talking about. And, and Paul felt this way as their spiritual parent. You know, my life is bound up with, with, with your life. Now that I see that you're standing firm, right? I'm, I'm experiencing joy in life because I know that you're doing, you're doing well. Look at verses nine and 10. He says, and how can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God and Father because of you as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your face. See, Paul knows, these are still baby Christians. You know, he, he knows there are gaps in their knowledge. He knows they need to be equipped more. And so he yearns to be with them once again. Now, that's the background of the prayer. Now, let's look at the prayer itself, the petitions of the prayer, which we see in verses 11 through 13, and the petitions break down very easily. There are three of them. One is in verse 11, one is in verse 12, and one is in verse 13. The first petition is this. He's praying to be with God's people in verse 11. Let's look at it. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. In other words, may he clear the way for us to come to you. You see, Paul has sent Timothy to be with them. He is now sending this letter to them, but he knows there is no substitute for him being able to come and to be with them face to face. Now listen, we can be thankful for the blessing of, of technology that enables us to communicate to people who are a long ways away that we can't be with. Just in the past couple of weeks since coming back from our, our mission trip, been able to have two two conversations you know, with, with a couple of the leaders that, that I was with on that trip as we kind of processed through uh, the days that we were together and, and, the, and, the, and the event that we were at together and, and, and how the Lord was working and what he was doing. It was like they were in the next 
room on those calls. And, and it's a, listen, if Paul could have done something like that with the Christians in Thessalonica when he was stuck in Athens, of course he would have done it. It would have been infinitely better that if he could have been able to, you know, to, uh, to hear their voice or to, you know, to see them on a screen. Of course, Paul would have taken advantage of technology like that to be able to communicate in these situations, no doubt. But he was, still would have wanted to come. <laughs> he still would have, he, because there's no substitute for the face-to-face interactions that Christians have as we worship and we fellowship together. And this is why God's people must prioritize this. We must prioritize the physical gathering together as the people of God. Let's look at Hebrews 10 and verses um, 23 through 25. And I noticed something this week in this text that I, I'd never quite seen the link to before, and I want to share it with you. Hebrews 10, and let's look at the beginning of verse 23, and let's read through verse 25. It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now you need to understand, this is a unit. We often hear verse 25, but really, verses 23 through 25 are a unit here. And he begins here in verse 23 by saying, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. You know, we're seeing this, this awful trend of professed Christians leaving the Christian faith and the trendy word for that is deconstruction, but it's really destruction. It's the destruction of faith. And, and just over the past couple of years, I have had some absolutely heartbreaking conversations with Christian parents, not so much in our church, but some wonderful parents, including uh, some of our folks with, that, that, have, that are leaders um, with, in, 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 with IMB. Missionary couples who have raised their, raised their children in the grace and knowledge of Christ. I, I, we're talking about wonderful Christian homes where the parents weren't just talking it, they were walking it. And the kids have grown up in, in that kind of environment. But, but you know, even... Even in strong Christian homes like this, so many, so many young adult children are, are, are abandoning their faith. And, and in these conversations with, with parents, heartbroken parents, there's one thing that emerges. The stories are all different, but there is one common denominator. I hear it over and over and over and over again in these cases. <clears throat> they got away from church. 
they got disconnected from the body of Christ. They started sloughing off on, on, on being with other believers in corporate worship together. Listen, friends, God really does know what he's talking about. When he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, and then he says, don't neglect gathering together, you need to understand the connection between those two things. One of the ways that we're able to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering is the, the, the support that we get from the body of Christ and gathering together with other believers on a weekly basis. We need it. We need it in order to hold fast to the confession of our hope without, without wavering. God knows what he's talking about when he says get together every week, worship together physically gather in their great little book, Rediscover Church, Colin Hansen and, and Jonathan Lehman say this, what makes gathering so powerful? The fact that we are physically there. You see, you hear, you feel. Unlike watching something on a screen in which you're bodily removed from the thing you're watching, a gathering literally surrounds you. It defines your entire reality. God made us soul and body, and somehow mysteriously he intertwines them so that what affects the body affects the soul. The Son of God took on a body, and he promised to build his church, a word that translated literally means assembly. Jesus organized Christianity this way. He means to center our Christianity around regularly gathering together, seeing one another, learning from one another, encouraging and correcting one another, and loving one another. Listen, <clears throat> the one anothering that we see in the New Testament is inconceivable apart from the physical gathering of believers together. So here's the question. Do you look forward to being with other Christians? Do you look forward to gathering in worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But do we really love people that we don't wanna be with? Would I really love Melissa if I didn't want to be with her? And if we don't love our brothers and sisters, then they, we might have a much bigger problem. Because 1 John 3 and verse 14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. In other words, one of the indicators that we've been born again, that we've passed from death to life, is that we love other Christians and we long to be with them. So how's your love life? And that's where Paul is going next. That's the second petition. Praying for love to flow through God's people. And we see that in verse 12. Let's look together at verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love 
for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. Now listen, this is a loving church at Thessalonica. In fact, we saw it in verse six. He commends them on their love, but now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. This is a loving church. But love is not something that we can coast on or take for granted or put on autopilot. No, we need to stoke the fires of our love. We need to pray for our love for other believers to be increasing and overflowing. And again, this cannot be separated from the physical gathering with other believers. Again, let's look at Hebrews 10 and look at this passage again in verses 23 through 25, but let's look at verse 24. He says, and let us consider one another in order to provoke or stir up, spur, love. How do we spur up, stir up love? How do we provoke love and good works? Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So again, just like we, we are able to hold on to the confession of our hope by being with other believers, gathering with them, we are able to stir up, to provoke love in one another by being together. We grilled out last night and we have a charcoal, uh, charcoal grill, and so I have a, a chimney, you know, where you put the charcoal, charcoal in, and when the charcoal is hot, you, you know, you dump out those coals into the grill. But inevitably, you know, when I do that, you know, a coal or two will, will tumble out to the side. I have to take a, a poker and, and bring them back in. Why? Because the coals, the, they, their, their fire feeds off one another. It, you, they, the fire, the, the, the fuel of the fire, they, 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 the coals feed off one another. They need to be together. And when Christians get isolated, their love grows cold. We, we feed off of one another's fire. And we want, to, we want to stoke that fire so that our love for the body of Christ just increases in every letter he writes. Paul goes to this. You know, at some point in all of his letters, he's gonna to go to the theme of love, the importance of loving one another in the body of Christ and not taking that for granted, but praying for it to increase. Where does he get this from? <laughs> he gets it from Jesus. Again, John chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen, love is the mark of the Christian. And we have a lot of uh, tattoos are very popular today. They're, they're a physical mark on the body. I'm not making any commentary about tattoos, okay? That's your Christian liberty. 
in Christ, right? I'm not, you know, that's a personal uh, preference unless you're growing up in the home in which it's your parents' uh, preference. But, you know, that's an issue of Christian liberty, not taking any stance on tattoos. I'm using it as an illustration because a tattoo is a physical mark. You have a preference, that's a personal preference as to whether or not you want to get a mark like that. But listen, when it comes to this mark, this is not an issue of personal preference. Christians are to be marked by love. The theologian Francis Schaeffer said it, love is the mark of the Christian. An unloving Christian is a walking contradiction. 1 John 4 and verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So pray, pray, pray for love to increase and overflow in our church, in the body of Christ and in our own lives, and in through our own lives. And not only for other Christians, but for everyone. Let's look at verse 12 again. What does he say here? He says, may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone. He's talking about outsiders. He's talking about those who are not yet Christians. The very people who were persecuting the believers in Thessalonica. They were under brutal persecution from unbelievers in their city. Look at this. Let's walk back through it. Look look back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Look at what he says here in verse 6. He says in 1.6, And you yourselves became imitators of us, and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, on the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel to you in spite of great opposition. Again, in chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country. And then we just saw it in in chapter 3. And verses two through four, he says, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one would be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. And the people who were doing the afflicting were the, were, were the unbelieving residents in the city of Thessalonica, the very people that Paul is commanding them to love. He says, we want your love to increase and overflow, not only for your brothers and sisters in Christ, but for everyone. 
for these unbelievers who were persecuting you. Now listen, again, where does Paul get this stuff? Gets it from Jesus. Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So instead of treating those who are not yet Christians, instead of treating them in kind, treat them with kindness, with love. May your love increase and overflow for them as well. So that's the second petition. Praying for love to flow through God's people. Here's the third. We see in verse 13. Praying for holiness among God's people. Praying for holiness among God's people. Look at verse 13. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, last week we saw Paul praying for something that we don't a lot of times talk enough about in 21st century America, you know, and that's endurance. Endurance, steadfastness, you know, to keep on keeping on. We don't hear nearly enough about that. And we don't hear enough about holiness but it's all over the Bible. May God make your hearts blameless in holiness. Look at 1 Peter 1 and verses 15 and 16. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. What does it mean to be holy? Does it mean a bunch of you know, legalistic rules and regulations that are attached to the Bible? No, because legalism actually trivializes true holiness. Does holiness mean, you know, you walk around with kind of a halo or an aura around you? It doesn't mean that either. The word holy comes from a word that originally means to cut. It, it means that we are, we are as believers, we, we, are, we are cut apart from the world to image God to the world. To image forth who Jesus is before the world. And in order to make a difference like that in the lives of people who don't yet know Christ, it means we have to be different. In order to shine, you've got to be different than the darkness, right? Look at Philippians chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom shine like stars in the world. These early believers were living in a culture that was incredibly dark. I mean, the first century Greco-Roman world in which they were living, it was spiritually dark, it was morally dark, but Paul sees that as an opportunity to shine. Now, now listen, we are living today in a culture that is incredibly dark and getting darker. And we can either kind of sit back and just lament that and complain about that, 
or we can shine in the midst of that. We're called to shine for the Lord. The opportunity that we have in an America that is growing darker by the day is that true Christianity shines out even brighter that people might find their way to the light of the Savior. I was so struck by the letter to Diognetus. This is an ancient document that scholars believe was written probably in the second century AD. We don't know who wrote it, it was anonymous. Um, but it's talking about the early believers, what they were like, you know, how they were distinguished from the world around them. Listen to some of the things that were said um, in, this, in this ancient document about the early church, about these early believers. The author says this, they marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. So in, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, abortion, infant exposure in which little babies were just abandoned on the street, these things were rampant. But the Christians from the very beginning uh, saw from God's word that that human life is precious, you know, from womb to tomb. And so there was this distinct pro-life stance from the very beginning in the Christian community and the way that they viewed this. They marry and have children just like everyone's, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. He's talking about Christian sexual morality the early Christians were distinguished by their fidelity in marriage. You know, they understood that sex is the gift of God, but it's something that is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. And so they, that, that made them very distinct in this culture, uh, in, in the Greco-Roman world, where uh, there was so much sexual immorality and moral confusion. The Christians again stood out for their, uh, their, their sexual morality, their, their, their fidelity in marriage. They offer a shared table but not a shared bed. They are passing their days on earth but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and even go beyond the laws in their own lives. They are mocked and yet blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks, yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. No wonder they turned the world upside down. <laughs> Which is exactly what Paul and the other missionaries, missionaries were accused of by the mob in Thessalonica. They're turning the world upside down, yes. Or maybe right side up. So pray for holiness. Pray for holiness in your own life. Pray for holiness in our church that we might be able to, to be different in order to shine, shine the light of Christ in a, in a culture that's increasingly dark. And then he gives us this motivation to spur us on as we do that. Look again at verse 13. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's talking about the return of Christ. Now, we don't know what day that is gonna be, but we know we wanna be ready for that day. And when the king comes, we want him to find us faithful. We wanna hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's live every day as if it's gonna be that day. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the body of Christ. Lord, how we, we pray for increasing, overflowing love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would want to be with them, that we would want to encourage one another and build each other up. Lord, I thank you for Paul's heart for these new Christians. Lord, may we come alongside each other disciple one another, care for one another. Lord, not just kind of leave each other to the side, but Lord, just really yearn to, um, to, build, to build one another up, to love each, each other, to be with one another. Lord, we, we pray for that love to increase and overflow. Lord, we pray for holiness in our lives, holiness among the people of God, Lord, that our lives would truly be different, that we would shine for Christ in, in order to make a difference that people could see Jesus in our lives and hear about him from our lips. Lord, when, when, whenever Christ returns, we want to be found faithful in these things. And so, Lord, would you work in our lives to make that happen? As we just continue to pray, listen, you could be in this room, you could be in the hearing of my voice, and you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Listen, friend, he loves you. And that love was demonstrated on a cross where Jesus died for sins of sinners like you and me. And then he rose from the dead that we can have eternal life. Life can begin again. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be reconciled to God a new day, a, new, a fresh beginning, new life, an eternal life. Christ is risen. Death has been defeated for all who trust in Jesus. Would you turn to him and trust him today? In a moment, we're gonna stand and sing, and if God's working in your life to know Jesus, we want to invite you to come and speak to one of us. We'll be here for you. As others stand, they'll gladly make way for you to come. Maybe, maybe you feel led to just come pray at the altar or pray with a brother and sister in Christ. It's always open for you to do that. And so, Father, we pray that you would work now in our lives. Lord, may this text be reality in our lives. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. 
Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.